Interventionary. My name is Reagan. My name is Jesse. And we are coming to you from Washington, D.C., ground zero for the world's most unnecessarily convoluted form of government. And also an absurd fucking buzzing us with jet planes at like, what was that, like nine in the morning? Yeah, it was way too early for a flyover, especially a flyover for a war that was that was like a hundred fucking years ago. Why yep. are we doing this now? Over. And at least if you're going to do it, why use fucking jet planes that are insanely loud and makes everyone think we're being bombed? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I personally thought there was just a very large garbage truck right by my window, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there are some people who, who heard it and was like, well, this is what I get for living in ground zero of the world's most unnecessarily convoluted form of government. Time to die. I was like, I think I'm about to die. And then I was like, it's way too early. And I put my blanket back over my head and unpaused uh, the Chapo episode I was listening to. <laughs> my cat thought that she was going to die as well. Yeah. She she was very unhappy with the flyover. Yeah, if you're going to do a World War One themed flyover, at least use fucking, like, biplanes. That could be kind of cute. Yeah, and and it's not even, like, a good even round number anniversary, you know? It's that they finished, an an- like, a memorial or something. Oh, okay. Which is a terrible reason to, you know... Start doing the military display of dominance with jet planes. Yeah. Doesn't even fucking make sense. I know. And, like, if they really wanted to do it that day, it was also Emancipation Day. Like, you could have done it for Emancipation Day and, I don't know, given them some cool ribbons that said Happy Emancipation Day behind the plane, spelling it out or whatever, you know? Do something for, like, a good holiday? I'm unfamiliar. Oh, it's a DC holiday. And it's the day when uh, the slave trade in D.C. was stopped. Oh, nice. Didn't know that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happened the same day. That's part of the reason I was so surprised when I, I when you told me it was a flyover. I was like, oh, it was probably for Emancipation Day. And then you were like, no, it was for some World War One thing. And I was like, I forgot about World War One. Does the city do anything for Emancipation Day? They tweet out things. Okay. And... Lots of local organizations also tweet out things, and then they send you emails, and they ask for money. I guess I wasn't on Twitter much that day. I'm on Twitter much every day, so I'll, I'll fill you in when you need it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and speaking of things that I'm going to fill you in on, today we are talking about Haiti, and specifically how the United States occupied Haiti in the 1910s. Boo. Yeah, we don't like that. So before we get started, I figured I would give you a little background on Haiti, even though we've talked about the Haitian Revolution in passing before on this, and we're not really going to be talking about it today, but you guys should definitely look it up because it is the coolest of the late 1700s, early 1800s revolutions. Like, it's even cooler than the French Revolution. The Haitian Revolution happened in 1804. 
Prior to 1804, Haiti was colonized by France. And that was largely because, first of all, France was colonizing everywhere. And specifically because Haiti has a really good climate for farming, a bunch of natural resources. As an island, it shares an island with the Dominican Republic. The island is called Hispaniola. And in general, this area is incredibly, or at least has the potential to be incredibly lush, beautiful place. Colonization, industrialization, fuck over Haiti in that regard over the course of the next 200 years. But in 1804, it's a great tropical place to be. And it had just had one of the most badass revolutions to ever revolution. Now it is independent. However, that independence is political and not yet economic. France uses gunboat diplomacy, which we've talked about before, where you have your big scary weapons and you ask for something in a really angry tone until another country gives it to you. And they force Haiti to basically pay reparations to France for no longer being a colony of France. Insane amount of bullshit. This happens in 1825. So Haiti has been independent for a little over 20 years at this point, And it starts having to pay absurd sums of money to France. Uh, and this causes a lot of political instability because all of a sudden, you know, the benefits of all of the resources and everything that you have on this island and the potential that you have as a country with this new constitution and all of these ideas totally out the window. You're having to give a solid chunk of your growing economy. And at the time, also, Haiti was considered kind of a pariah because it was a an example that people like the United States and other major imperial powers did not want to endorse. It was a black revolution. They were independent coming out of slave revolts. People were not exactly lining up to help Haiti at this point. They killed virtually all of the the white people on the island. It, it was like textbook exemplar of what like for instance, like American slaveholders feared would happen. Oh yeah, they were absolutely petrified of Haiti. And because of that, the United States and a lot of countries like it, which had the power and potentially the ability to help Haiti as it got started or work together, were not willing to do that. In fact, one of the major reasons why France was able to convince Haiti to start paying reparations was because there were so many countries, including the United States, that refused to recognize Haiti's independence. And the U.S. had indicated that it would recognize Haiti's independence if it started paying France back. Do you know when they finally did recognize Haiti's independence? Uh, is it after the, the invasion? I don't know. It's It's in the 1860s as part of the... As part of Lincoln's civil war, his civil war and his attempt to gain morale by framing it as a moral crusade, because that wasn't originally what it was like an anti-slavery. Yeah. Originally, it was keep the union together and then it kind of shifted the messaging to try and improve morale. And as a part of that, he recognized Haiti's independence, something that the U.S. had been promising to do for the past 35 years and hadn't done yet. I would just add a. Uh- even more than 
him wanting to improve morale, I would say that slaves and former slaves forced that to become one of the primary issues of the war. Like, they made it something that everyone else had to deal with. Yeah, it's it's the way that organizers work, man. Mm-hmm. It's the way that organizers work. So, in addition to France generally stealing a fuck ton of money from Haiti, Germany is also fucking around in Haiti during the 1800s. And the U.S., towards the end of the 1800s, starts to be really tense with Germany for impending World War I reasons. Uh, and they're, they're not entirely happy that Germany has such a presence in Haiti, especially because a lot of the Germans who lived in Haiti were second generation and had married into Haitian families, which allowed them to buy land. You couldn't buy land in Haiti if you were a foreigner. That was something that they very consciously put into their constitution because they wanted to keep Haiti free of foreign influence. This is something that American merchants call disrespecting their sovereignty. And it basically is, yeah, we we invade basically every country that tries to do this, I feel like, in the Americas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Germany found a way around it, but they had to marry black people. And the Americans just couldn't do that. So uh, at this point, also, one of the other factors was that the U.S., as we've mentioned before, has always kind of been operating under the Monroe Doctrine. Basically, it gets to go, don't touch our Latin America. We call dibs on all of it. It's ours. Don't touch it. And in 1904, shocking racist Theodore Roosevelt adds the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which basically says that if there is a conflict between a European country and a Latin American country, the U.S. will intervene on behalf of usually the European country in order to make sure that it is the broker for all things Latin America. And basically it means that Europeans generally can't get into Latin America without some kind of U.S. intervention. There's a historian who I was watching an interview with about this. His name is Dr. David Kilroy. And he referred to the Roosevelt Corollary as the U.S., quote, giving itself super sovereignty over Haiti and all of the areas in Latin America. So if Germany is now all over Haiti and any sort of conflict arises for any reason, the U.S. now has an excuse to butt in in its official imperial policy. Not that it really needs one, just to be clear. (laughs) Um, There are also a bunch of American businessmen, you know, living there. The way that there are German businessmen living there. And uh, as we know, when there are businessmen living somewhere, the U.S. always has an excuse to invade because there are American lives and property there now. And they might need protecting. So, as we've already mentioned, there was a lot of economic instability in Haiti right now, and that leads to a lot of political instability. And so, around the time that we're talking about, so this is post-Roosevelt Corollary, the U.S. is just kind of waiting to invade. Actually, uh, fun fact, Andrew Johnson, 
You remember you remember him, the, the first president to get impeached? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Another ridiculous racist right after Abraham Lincoln, he wrote a declaration of intent to occupy Haiti. So this is, again, the 1860s. Going back 50 years, they have had on the books an intent to occupy Haiti written by an American president with the date left blank so they could just fill it in later. So this has always been kind of on the U.S.'s mind. Haiti's got a lot of potential for farming and natural resources, and it would just be super nice politically if they could clamp down on anything that Haiti might inspire. So we've always kind of wanted this. And between the years of 1911 and 1915, so like four years, Haiti has seven presidents. People are getting assassinated, people are getting ousted, and this is mainly done by groups called CACOs. Are you familiar with those, Jesse? I am not. Ah, well, they were militias, and they were actually a tradition that began during the Haitian Revolution. So the CACOs have always been around, and they kind of form, and they stay for a little bit, and then they unform, and then it comes time for another rebellion, and more ones can form, and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, a very decentralized kind of organizing that is a part of the Haitian tradition, and has been at this point for almost for over 100 years. So the CACOs will keep coming back. And they are ousting people, between 1911 and 1915, and there are a lot of American banks. And it probably won't be out by the time this episode is out, but if you want to learn more about banks, you should definitely listen to the episode that we just recorded about imperialism by Vladimir Lenin, because he's got chapters upon chapters of the role of banks in imperialism, and this is going to be another story that just illustrates it super well. So basically, there are a bunch of American banks who are threatened by the Germans in Haiti. And so they go to the Department of State, and the Department of State backs them financially as a group of investors headed by the National City Bank of New York. Does that sound familiar to any currently existing banks? National City Bank of New York. City Bank. Yeah, so this this will later become <laughs> Citibank, which is now Citigroup. So uh, just keep, keep in your mind, they're still around. You might still be banking with these guys. This money eventually leads to them having the naming rights for the stadium that the Mets play in. Yeah. So it's City Field. It's City Field, and the city is New York, and specifically the National City Bank of New York. Shea Stadium forever. <laughs> So the National City Bank of New York and, and investors investors from the bank go to the Department of State and say that they want to buy out the Haitian National Bank, which was the only national bank in Haiti, so therefore also the biggest bank in Haiti, as well as serving as the government's treasury. And with money from the United States, National City Bank bought the Haitian treasury. I believe this is a move that we will hear about being repeated in a week, if uh, I'm remembering my early research correctly. It the, the banks are starting to figure out that they can basically buy countries that way. And National City Bank really wants to get the Germans out and put more Americans in. 
So around the year of 1914, National City Bank and the Haitian National Bank, because now they are buddies, you know, one mm-hmm. of them has been has been majority bought, but I don't think wholly bought at this point. It's basically a subsidiary. Yeah, it becomes a subsidiary of National City Bank. Um, but I don't think it's a wholly owned subsidiary yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the two get together and they start actually actively encouraging chaos in Haiti with their finances and uh, with the extracurricular activities of the bank and the people who work there. Because they realize that if they can get more chaos involved in Haiti, which is already kind of stirring because they're in that seven presidents in four years period. If they can stir the pot a little more, the U.S. might intervene, which would be super good for them. I wouldn't expect any country to have to be stable when they've basically just been paying most of their, you know, economic surplus in debt payments to other countries for the last hundred years. Yeah, exactly. There's just no way. It's, yeah, um, poverty breeds instability, and they are... They're forced into poverty. Yeah. (laughs) Having all of their resources siphoned out. Exactly. Exactly. And um, that now includes, you know, the workings of their singular national bank. The entire economy, probably. The entire economy, but they want more of the entire economy. And so one National City Bank lobbyist, this is still in 1914, calls the Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, in January of 1914, to try and persuade him that, hey, things look like they might get worse in Haiti. You should be prepared in case, I don't know, something bad maybe happens and you need to intervene, huh? They basically said that Haiti isn't improving financially because there is so much conflict. They said that the Haitian people don't like the constant chaos, which is probably true, and would welcome American troops, which is definitely not true. And they said that Haiti wouldn't improve until, quote, such time as some stronger outside power steps in. So they're just laying it on thick to put it in the back of William Jennings Bryan's back of his mind for when when this might become useful, maybe. Mm-hmm. So less than a week later, the president of Haiti is deposed in a coup, and the U.S. responds by sending Marines and a boat to, quote, protect American interests. Uh, shortly thereafter, the French and the British show up, but the U.S. is like, nah, we got this. Roosevelt Corollary says, we'll take it from here. You handle your great war, whatever you're doing. So by the end of the year, this is still 1914, National City Bank has convinced the Navy and the Department of State on top of the Marines who are already there to support further military invasion, including providing its military to support National City Bank as it takes... Haiti's national reserves, since Haiti is apparently too unstable to safeguard them. So they actually pick up all of the money that is in Haiti, and they put it on American boats. 
She's literally stealing all of their money. Yes, what amounts to $13 million in today's money was shipped on a boat out of Haiti to New York by National City Bank. And that brings us into 1915. So, February of 1915, Jean Vabron Gilliam Sam takes power as president of Haiti. We'll just call him President Sam. Uh, he's a very pro-American dude. So we don't really pay too much attention, except in July, so like four months later, President Sam orders the execution of nearly 200 political prisoners, including a, a former president, from prominent families with German connections. Uh, they've, they've all been put in jail. There's, I think, 167 of these political prisoners who have been sitting in jail for political charges, and he executes them. Like, nearly 200 people. And uh, this, in turn, pisses off all of the people, because you just randomly killed these people who many of the people supported in their political actions. And so they chase him down the street and drive him into hiding in the French embassy, then pull him out of the French embassy and publicly assassinate him. And this pisses off the United States, of course, because he was their buddy and he got got by the people. Uh, And apparently this is a threat to the Haitian American Sugar Company in particular. Yeah, I'm just wondering with his actions there, the the President Sam, because I'm like, you don't get power. I mean, there's no money in in the country. It's literally been taken. So I'm guessing you don't get power without, you know, being pro-American because that's where the money comes from. And meanwhile, the Americans are not happy with the... I'm wondering, did he execute them in part on behalf of the Americans? Or at the very least, were they cool with it? Well, the people he was executing were all from prominent German families, which was the U.S.'s big competitor in the area, and also because he's pro-American and they were political prisoners against him, it's pretty safe to assume most of them were anti-American. So I doubt the U.S. was upset by this, especially because after he got executed for doing it, they use that as a pretense to invade. Yeah. I'm basically just curious. I'm like, how directly can we tie the U.S. to this massacre? Which, is, I mean, like, already, like, impl- like from the start, pretty close. But I'm just curious, like... He was an American puppet. It was done by an American puppet. But anyway, this sugar company feels really threatened. And this is particularly because... As we mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of militias called Kakos running around. And they were the ones who killed President Sam. And they support replacing him with a man named Rosalvo Bobo, who did not like the United States. And he pretty quickly becomes the president, like within the same month. Bobo becomes president. And uh, the U.S., in response, 
orders 330 marines to start occupying the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. So, in February, U.S.-backed president wins. In July, that U.S.-backed president does a massacre and is executed. Then somebody the people like is put in charge, and by the end of the month of July, 330 marines have been sent to occupy the capital. Yeah, that's no good. You gotta, you gotta do something about that. Exactly. This was done at the behest of President Woodrow Wilson. What? And his stated goal was to rewrite the Haitian constitution so it no longer banned non-Hawaiians from owning land. Which, if you'll notice, actually has nothing to do with who the president is. So it seems like it was kind of a pretext they had been sitting on for a little while and were just looking for an excuse to jump in. So... The occupying force goes around after the U.S. Marines get in, in that July of 1915. And they start trying to recruit a new president. All the Marines are like, hey, so this President Bobo guy can't be president. We need someone else now to be the president. And nobody wants to do it. Finally, a U.S. ally named Philippe Sudre. Deltigeneve, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, Deltigeneve is how I'm going to be pronouncing his last name because I have no idea how it's supposed to be said. But uh, he's a U.S. ally and he steps up and is installed as president on August 15th of 1915. Also, the U.S., because Haiti owes it a lot of money, is starting to get worried that Haiti will not be able to pay its debts. And uh, apparently Haiti has been unstable for a while, and the U.S. just can't figure out why. As a part of its goal of getting Haiti to repay its debts plus interest to the United States, first, the U.S. does a Roosevelt corollary type thing and buys out all of Haiti's debt from France. So now all of the money for the reparations for being colonized that Haiti was paying France, it now pays back to the U.S. So now it doesn't owe anybody but the U.S. money, and it just owes the U.S. a fuck ton more money. That again is reparations for being colonized. This feels like an appropriate thing for the U.S. to be doing. It's basically one of our dominant industries now, internally, is buying people's debt and then harassing them over the phone until you get some of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically what they were doing with Haiti. Except instead of harassing them over the phone, they seized all of the customs houses and the- They sent Marines. They sent literal (laughs) Marines. And they took all of the administrative institutions, including all of the banks- They took all of the customs houses to the places where all of the taxes and duties were stored, and they earmarked 40% of Haiti's income annually, specifically for American and French bank payments, which basically froze Haiti's economic development at that point, understandably. Haiti's had a rough go on the economic development front for a long time now. Yeah, that's what being colonized tends to do. Yeah. 
So in September of 1915, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Haitian American Convention, which gave the U.S. security and economic oversight over Haiti for the next 10 years. They would be staying longer than that, but at this point, they were just planning for 10 years. Now, U.S. representatives have veto power over literally anything that the Haitian government does. All government decisions. The U.S. now gets veto power. Also, Marine commanders serve as the administrators for all government departments. For the next 19 years, American Marines would be occupying Haiti. And they oversaw basically all of its governance even down to the municipal level with law enforcement and tax collection. Um, But at this point, still in 1915, people don't like the new occupying army. And immediately the Kakos start rebelling. Uh, Normally we would think this is really, really cool here at Interventionary, but unfortunately the U.S. bore down on them with the full force of its bloated military budget, and quashed the rebellion after only two months in November of 1915. This conflict is known as the First Kakao War. So, uh, spoiler alert, this is a reoccurring event. In 1916, basically throughout that year, the U.S. will keep occupying Haiti while Woodrow Wilson starts drafting up his ideas for a new constitution. Haitians do not like this, understandably. They had been a literal slave colony and purposefully banned foreigners from owning land so that they could stay independent. The U.S., however, doesn't care and handed the new constitution, which would let them own land, over to the legislature at the end of 1916. 1917, the legislature rejects the American Constitution immediately and promptly is dissolved by the U.S. puppet government and all of the Marines and everyone backing them. So now Haiti has no legislature and it wouldn't for the next 12 years. Uh, you know, who needs that branch of government? You can just have occupation instead. So we didn't just, we basically annexed Haiti for about, as a colony, for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, starting in about 1914, and this will go till 1934, so about about 20 years. We just had it. 1918, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the guy from your history textbook, was working as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, just like his older cousin, Theodore Roosevelt had, and he drafted the new constitution for Haiti on the train ride from D.C. to New York City. Gross. Uh, It was then passed in a referendum at gunpoint with shocking numbers showing an incredibly large percent of the people were in support of this brand new constitution that got written on a train by a guy who had barely been to Haiti. And uh, we're all super incredibly shocked, and now Americans can buy land in Haiti, which they're all super excited about. Also in 1918, the end of World War I, which is really, really bad for Haiti, because Germany was the only other country that was kind of 
involved and they were anti-American throughout basically all of World War One. So they had been able to kind of draw on the German government and the German population's sympathies for Haiti and get a little bit of aid and help in fighting the occupation. Because the war part is technically over, but there is still like skirmishes and strikes and fights popping up and they're still resisting the occupation. It's just not happening in big military battles at this point. Um, and now, unfortunately for Haiti, Germany is super broke at the end of World War One, which I'm sure will not at all come up in future geopolitics. Now that the U.S. is free from World War I as well, it can turn its attention to crushing those sporadic rebellions that I was just mentioning, ending the acts of guerrilla warfare that had been kind of helping Haiti. So that's basically why 1918 is known as the second Kakao War. Like 1918 is, there was, there was the first Kakao War and now there's the second one. And it's known as the Second Kakao War, but not really because that was when the Haitians started fighting occupation. It was never really, they never really stopped fighting the occupation, you know. But uh, 1918 was when the U.S. stopped being in World War One and had time to start fighting back. And that's what they did. The biggest, most notable battle was in... Obviously, 1918, uh, when 40,000 Kakos, led by officers from the Haitian army that the U.S. had dissolved, uh, absolutely beat the shit out of the police forces that the U.S. had hired and created in their country in an attempt to retake that country. The Marines actually had to call in reinforcements to beat them all back, uh, but once they did, the battle ended in U.S. favor. But that was pretty badass, and we, we love to see it. The next year, the leader of the Kakos launched an attack on Port-au-Prince, which again is the capital of Haiti. And later, after that attempt, he was assassinated. So the Marines basically put a stop there when they killed him. But the Second Kakao War didn't really end until the leader after him was killed, which happened in 1920. At the end of the Second Kakao War, the total death toll was 2,000 Kakos, 28 American Marines, and 70 Haitian cops. So, mostly Haitians. Things would basically stay stable after that next leader is killed and, and the war is over for a couple of years. Uh, the biggest development between 1920 and 1922 is that the Haitian National Bank goes from being a subsidiary of National City Bank of New York to a wholly owned subsidiary. So now National City Bank owns all of the Haitian National Bank and decides that they're just going to move it to New York because why would the Haitians need their treasury to be in Haiti? And now it's a literal subsidy of an American bank and it lives in New York City. Then comes 1922. 
when it is time to replace the president because term limits with a man named Louis Borno. Borno is most well known for using forced labor to expand infrastructure throughout Haiti, and also for shipping seasonal workers to the Dominican Republic and Cuba to work on farms there because the sugar industries were more developed than that in Haiti, and then they could send remittances back and give him money. Um, people were not a fan of the forced labor that, that he was known for, but he was backed by the U.S., so he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, he remains in power, expanding the agricultural industry with pretty limited success, I'll be honest, until his term expires in 1930. But there is one thing that we should talk about before we get to 1930, and that is the year before, 1929. So 1929... Demonstrations that largely began with agricultural students start popping up opposing the occupation. There was a lot of resentment among the students in particular because they were only really being taught how to like raise pigs and things and they wanted to go to college and be lawyers and help improve their government and be scientists and do cool things. But they were being taught how to like plow fields. And so that is where the protests start. Fun fact about this educational system, by the way, is that it was focused on practical skills because it was based on a model of the black education system in the American South. They had actually even just shipped out teachers from the Tuskegee Institute and stuff who were doing the teaching in Haiti. They were like, oh, all of these... All of these people are just black and therefore agricultural workers and all they need to know is how to raise pigs and we'll just do exactly what we do in our country where we just relegate them to tenant farming and teach them how to do that and nothing else regardless of what they want. Or insist that, you know, vocational training is all that anyone needs and why should we pay for uh, people to go to fancy private schools when all they need to know is how to repair things. Mm -hmm. People, people shouldn't be allowed to learn things that they want to learn. It should purely be based on what the market wants them to learn. And we said that that is how to raise <laughs> pigs. And uh, this has pissed people off for a while, but in 1929 demonstrations starting with these folks spread rapidly all over the country throughout the year. And on December 5th of 1929, as a response to the protests, the Marines, with their planes and their boats and everything, fly over a harbor in a southern municipality called Les Calles, and they drop bombs in the harbor to intimidate the protesters and try and make them go home. But it has the opposite effect. It pisses off a bunch of people. And so December 6th, 1929, the next day rolls around and 1,500 peasants are gathered near the U.S. Marines and, and where they are based. And they go out there to chant. Some of them have sticks. They surround a Marine unit. And that Marine unit responds by opening fire on those 1,500 people, wounding 23 and killing 30. And that is known as the Calles Massacre. And it feeds into 
a lot of what starts happening in 1930. So this is very recent. This happens at the end of 1929. Um, and then 1930 comes around and the people have had it. I was going to say up to here, but then I realized it's a podcast. But they've had it up to here with this. And so a man named Stenio Vincent, who is pretty anti-American and definitely anti-occupation, wins the presidency in 1930. So right after this. And normally the U.S. would crush this president as hard as they could. But... In addition to the fact that the Calles massacre just occurred, which pissed off all the people and made intervening really volatile, something else happened in 1929. Ah, yes. Black Friday. Yeah, the Great Depression started. So Herbert Hoover has his hands full. And all he can do to really deal with this anti-American president being elected in Haiti is to appoint a commission to study the situation, which is American government speak for nothing. Yeah. The commission, however, actually does do a good bit of research, and it concludes that the U.S. occupation was a failure that solved none of the economic, political, or social problems that it set out to do. It found that, quote, the U.S. did not understand the social problems of Haiti. <laughs> I'm shocked. I know. Shocked. <laughs> no one is surprised. The commission also reveals that the Marines had been keeping files on the political activities of like a huge number of people in Haiti throughout the occupation, including detailed information on the politics of like barbers and day laborers. And normally this would be super spooky and police statey and gross. But... <laughs> Lucky for us and the people of Haiti, the U.S. government is incredibly incompetent. The information they had gathered indicated that everything was going great and no one had any complaints about the government <laughs> or the U.S. military, leaving them blindsided every single time the Kakos attacked them. Incredible. It's so good. It's one of my favorite historical fun facts. Um... So now we have this report that's like, yeah, the U.S. is incompetent and also it's not doing anything good. And we've just had our entire stock market crash. And Herbert Hoover takes this report and then kind of throws it to the side because he has other things to do. Uh, but even though he's just kind of sitting on this report, he casually starts working on withdrawing troops in in this year of 1930. And so by 1932, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the guy from your history textbooks, wins the presidency for the first of his 43 terms, he is not without precedent to create a disengagement agreement where he gets together with the Haitian government and starts laying out the terms for the U.S. to end its occupation in 1933. The U.S. just has bigger things to deal with. It The only excuse that it will ever have for ending an occupation willingly. Well, Roosevelt seems also to have ended uh, a few occupations. Yeah. 
It, um, I would contend that most of those were for the same reason, which was dealing with the <laughs> Great Depression. Yeah. He was, part of his strategy was, you for know, sure. the good neighbor policy where he was like, we're just going to get everyone out of everywhere. That's basically how all the banana wars ended was FDR coming to power and saying, we need to do some protectionism for a little bit and stop wasting all these resources. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, not necessarily all that great, but rather just it could just be a reprioritization towards the home front. Yeah. Uh, so just to put a bow on it, the last of the Marines leave in August of 1934, and the U.S. continues controlling Haiti's finances until 1947. So. Whether you consider the occupation to have ended in 1934 when the last of the Marines leave, or in 1947 when the U.S. stops unilaterally controlling Haiti's <laughs> Haiti's economic like policies, um, either way, you know, the U.S. occupied for a fuck ton, long, long, long ass time. And one of the things that I noticed with this is it, reading about it kind of made me feel the way that reading about the war in Afghanistan does in that in the beginning, there was, you know, detailed reporting on it and people were talking about it. But I don't remember a time before the war in Afghanistan. Like, I don't remember any time when we have not been at war with Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I just don't ever hear about it, ever. And what seems like it happened on the home front in the manufacturing consent news regard is that Haiti is kind of talked about when we first get there in 1914 and then it dies off and it doesn't really come back into the public view until 1928 when there was a presidential election and Warren G. Harding accused Herbert Hoover of quote murdering Haitians and this brought it back into the discourse mm mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, there was only really one magazine that was consistently telling people about what was going on in Haiti when it wasn't an election question. And uh, that is the nation, which is still around and still doing similar work, which I think is yeah. cool. Um, yeah. But just as it was back then, the nation was part of the alternative press. And so if you were not actively reading and looking for anti-war news, you just were not going to hear about Haiti until either some politician decided it was important and then it faded into the background or until something really good happened and we could brag about it. And aside from that, you know, another historian who talks about this, his name's Arthur Link. And he's got this quote that the process of pacification became almost a war of extermination. As they almost always do. We've seen it in a bunch of places now. 
yeah. Philippines primarily comes to mind. Of course the Philippines. And it's just like, it feels so much like Afghanistan to me. But again, a lot of that has to do with where I am personally. Let us know if it reminds you of Afghanistan by leaving us a review with five stars and then say whether or not you think it does. Just let us know if you're thinking of Afghanistan. (laughs) Yeah. Please, a reminder that we are still in Afghanistan and that Trump signed a deal that said that we were going to get out on May 1st and then Biden got into power and he pushed it back until September. And the people of Afghanistan and the Afghan negotiators are very mad about this. Everyone in the U.S. seems to be running around thinking that this is a good thing that we're going to get out by September. And I agree that we should be out, but also just know that we are actually not celebrating a victory. We are celebrating going back on a deal that we made with the Afghan negotiators. And also, we have just massively increased our military budget. Which makes a lot of people, myself included, very suspicious that even after we say we have gotten out of Afghanistan, we will still be spending so much money on the military. It's shocking. You know, I really doubt that we're actually going to fully get out and not just fill it with private contractors who technically aren't military so we could say that it's over. Because if we were really ending a war, there would be no reason to be increasing the military budget. And yet, that's what's happening. Well, they'll send them somewhere else if they have to. They don't really care where. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they're pulling them out so that they can gear up with the war they've been trying to do with China. It'll probably just be a proxy war, though, whatever we end up doing. I don't think we're going to fight China head-on yet. No, we're not. Yeah, I I don't imagine the, the Biden administration is going to be openly starting any wars. No. No, but there, I could, I could see them doing some proxy war stuff. He, he served under the drone striker in chief, you know? I'm sure he'll figure some stuff out. And on that happy note, thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you tell all of your friends about Interventionary. Follow us at Interventionary on the Twitter. And make sure you also rate and review us. Give us five stars if you can, because It makes me happy, but if not, I also understand it's important to be honest with yourself. (laughs) Uh, Thank you all so much. Special thanks to Hangley Yu for our wonderful intro music, and as always, stay safe out there. Bye. be able to stay home brother you will not be able to plug in turn on and cop out you will not be able to lose yourself on skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised the revolution will not be televised the revolution will not be brought to you by xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised.
The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the port from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm, women liberationist, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Thank you.